welcome to this bonus re-release episode of the Her Story Speaks podcast. I originally recorded this bonus episode in December of 2019, shortly after my first podcast conversation with Pastor Emmy Kegler, where she shared her story growing up as a queer Christian called to ordain ministry. If you missed that conversation, I encourage you to go listen. The link is in the show notes. Many of you know that meeting Emmy and reading her book, One Coin Found, How God's Love Stretches to the Margins, was transformational for me in my own faith journey. As a straight, cisgendered woman raised in a white, conservative family, I was always taught that being gay was a sin. I never questioned this until in about two and a half years ago, when I started to encounter real people and real stories of those in the LGBTQ community. Emmy was one of those people. She came into my life at a time I had started questioning what I was being taught about women's roles in ministry and the complementarian view that women couldn't be pastors. When I started to take a deeper look into scripture and the patriarchal lens I had always been taught through, I then started to question everything else I had been taught and realized things were not so black and white like I had always been told. I then started to dive into the LGBTQ community and what I had always been taught to believe. What I found was God's love is so much bigger and wider than I had ever been taught, and all are welcome to His kingdom. I have ultimately come to believe that identifying with the LGBTQ community is not a sin or an abomination, but rather it's who God created this beloved community to be. I know you may not be as far along in your journey, or maybe question how I can possibly say this when, quote, the Bible clearly states XYZ. I've been there and I understand. But I'm here to tell you that what I've learned through reading and studying, the Bible can be used to justify just about everything. And because of this, it has been used as a weapon against too many communities, especially those from the LGBTQ community. If you really take a closer look at the Bible and context and original translations, you'll find that it's not so black and white after all. I still consider the Bible a sacred text, but I also know it's been written through a patriarchal lens, and much of the original Hebrew has been lost in translation. With so much gray area, I'm now at a place where if I encounter a gray area or something that doesn't make sense or we're uncertain about, I examine it through the lens of Jesus. And if there's anything black and white in the Bible, it's that Jesus constantly lived and preached love. Scripture is also clear that Jesus was passionate about reaching out to those on the margins and welcoming them to be near him and included. There is no doubt that the LGBTQ community has been cast out, especially by the church, to the margins of society. And as Jesus followers, I'm not sure how we can think God's will is to be part of pushing people to the margins rather than reaching out and fully including them. I encourage you to listen into this conversation I had with Emmy, where we dive into the clobber verses and talk about the Christian response to the LGBTQ community. Also, be sure to check out the show notes for this episode, as there's lots of great links to resources that Emmy shares to help educate those wrestling with this topic. Emmy, welcome back to the Her Story Speaks podcast. Thank you so much for having me back, Andrea. Well, you are the only guest I've had come back twice, and it's just an honor to get to, to, get to talk to you twice. <laughs> Sometimes that's not a good thing, <laughs> no, but it we'll is work a, with it. It's a good thing. Um, and so this format is just a little bit different. We know your story. For those that didn't hear your story uh, from this last month, I encourage people to listen. And today we're just going to dive into a lot of questions because your story, especially with my audience, has generated just a lot of questions, not even questions, but statements and thoughts that we're just going to 
talk about today and get your, not even your feedback, I mean, your expertise. I mean, you are a theologian, you're a pastor, so you have spent your life talking about these things and answering people's questions. Mm-hmm. Okay, so here we go. We'll start out, we're going to start out easy, if you can, <laughs> real easy. Let's just go with the basics of what the letters mean, the LGBTQ, what mm-hmm. each one stands for in a nutshell. Sure. The first two are ones that are relatively common for people. The L and the G are for lesbian and gay. Gay can mean gay man or gay woman. Lesbian is specifically about um, a woman who is attracted um, to other women. And so those two have remained because those have been some of the defining categories that we've used for um, decades now to talk about, you know, sort of the, the majority group of LGBT. But then we get into that B of bisexual. For a long time, what this meant was I'm attracted to both genders, that bi meaning two, men and women. But of course, as the community came to understand that there are people who are physically intersex who are born without distinguishing um, gender or without distinguishing uh, to be crass. I'm sorry, genitalia. Uh, yes, we can people... say that word. It's okay. Okay, great. <laughs> some people are are born with physical bodies that don't conform to male or female. Or um, we might find out, for example, when somebody tries to start getting pregnant and they. Uh, struggle with fertility, uh, somebody who's been identified as female, they might go in and find out, yeah, not only do you have um, a uterus, but you also have undescended testes. Um, Or there are people with um, chromosomal mixes. It's not all XX and XY. There are people with XXY um, and other um, really interesting fuzzy in between. Um, In addition, when when we start talking about just men and women that can also come off as exclusionary towards trans people, which I'll get into in the next letter. So bisexual for a lot of people today is um, more commonly defined as I'm attracted to two genders and they are people who are like my gender and people who are not like my gender. So then that can be a more expansive read on that. Okay. Then, of course, that is informed by the existence of the transgender community. And the simplest way to explain Um, the experience of being transgender is for most of us, when we are um, looked at through an ultrasound before our birth or when we're born, the doctor turns to our parents and says, congratulations, it's a blank, boy or girl, um, based on what our genitalia look like. And this, for most of us, is congruent with our internal identity, that people look at us and address us as male or female, treat us as male or female, use certain pronouns, have certain expectations based on really what our genitalia looked like before we were born. For transgender people, uh, this is not congruent. They grow up and even at very young ages are called male based on the fact that they have male-defined genitalia and they say, no, that's not consistent with how I feel. I don't want a male name. I don't want um, male pronouns used for me. I don't want to dress like a boy. I'm not interested in boy things. Or the opposite can also be true. So transgender can then encompass a wide variety of physical embodiment. Trans people can be a child who is, you know, um, what we talk about in whether or not we know if a child is transgender or if they're, you know, going through the same, like, I'm a dinosaur, I'm Simba from the Lion King kind of thing. Is, is it persistent, like they continue um, to say this is true for me, that I'm not the gender that you have assigned to me based on my genitalia? Um, do they persist in doing that? 
over time? Is it consistent? Do they continually say, no, I'm not the gender you're assigning to me, or does it go back and forth? And is it insistent? Are they continue, you know, do they, do they say this with a strong emotional connection to it? Those are usually defining characteristics for a psychiatrist or psychologist or general practice doctor to then say to parents, I think what we have here is a child who is transgender. Okay. What we do with that then, um, what we know for psychological development is kids who identify as kids who are transgender and identify as a different gender than their assigned gender at birth flourish, do better in school, do better emotionally, do better physically when they are allowed to uh, what's called socially transition. So that's to use a name and pronouns that are consistent with their internal gender. Okay. Um, that's really interesting. Mm-hmm. Didn't know that. Okay. Didn't know. Now, obviously, in the same way that we wouldn't do plastic surgery on a small child, in the same way that we don't do, you know, replacement hormone therapy um, or start, you know, talking about birth control for mitigating, you know, painful periods until a child is well through puberty, we also don't do any medical interventions with children before um, we, we would never do, like, across the board, medical associations do not do any sort of surgical intervention with children who are transgender until they are 18 at least. Okay. In addition, as far as um, hormone blockers or hormone replacement therapy go, usually what will happen is if a child has persistently, consistently, and insistently identified as a different gender than the gender they're assigned, when they reach puberty, that becomes even more painful if you think about I identify like if someone were to say I identify as male I feel like a boy I go by boy names and they get their period Mm. Mm -hmm. like periods are uncomfortable enough right but to now have this like clear marker that your body has completely rebelled against what you internally feel um so what will sometimes be done, and especially will be done in cases where children have a really high um, level of what's called gender dysphoria, like severe discomfort with the mismatch, um, is hormone blockers. So will okay. delay puberty so that a trans male child, so that would be somebody assigned female at birth based on having female genitalia, we would say, okay, we're going to put you on hormone blockers that delay you getting your period. Okay. Until we can get you to a point where as an adult, you can start making medical decisions about your body. So it's so much more than like, I just want to wear boy or girl clothes. The opposite it's of what very it's much like, more. this yeah. is a deep psychological traumatic, all of these things. Like that's, mm-hmm. that definitely sheds a lot more light on mm-hmm. that. So the cue, we talked about this, our last conversation, but I edited it out to save it for day today mm-hmm. because I felt like it was more fitting. So the cue was one I was struggling with because I was like, that that's not a nice term. So mm-hmm. you and my daughter both corrected me on that. So <laughs> let's talk about the queer, the cue. Yes. So in um, recent decades, a lot of members within the LGBT community have been reclaiming the term queer, which for... You know, even today, um, some kids still play in the playground, smear the queer, where you chase down. Usually that's against um, feminine presenting or other, you know, sort of weaker, you know, children have decided that there's a weaker boy among the group and they will chase them and beat them up, which is, Mm. you know, um, really healthy for everyone involved. But so um, one of, there's, there's many reasons that we've been reclaiming that term, but one of them 
is that the further we got into understanding gender uh, gender identity and sexual orientation, the more we came to understand that the labels can sometimes separate us. How, it, you know, it's so important for us to be able to have words that describe our experience and can say, you know, I'm a woman attracted to women and to men. And so what does that make me? Oh, we, we have a category for that. We have a name for that. What you're experiencing is not original or unique to you. And yet that distinguishing between um, individuals within the LGBT community can sometimes um, erase some of our commonalities. It can also then isolate people who feel somehow different than sort of the heterosexual expected norm, but they don't fit into some of the categories that fall in that first four letters of LGBT. Sometimes what's been done is we add on additional letters at the end. We, so that's when we start adding in intersex um, for people that I've already talked about who don't have clearly distinguished um, physical presentations. Sometimes we talk about asexual people who don't experience any romantic or sexual attraction. And we start adding on additional letters, LGBTQIA. Okay. And for some people, that's not a helpful then it gets cumbersome, right? Uh, so right. they want to say, they want to have one word that overarches and queer does work as an overarching umbrella term because essentially at its, at its core definition, what it means is I'm different from other people in a way I can't quite pin down. Okay, so queer is a safe, good word to use for kind of the umbrella of a description, right? It can yes or be. No. Okay. No. Okay. Wrong. <laughs> Short no, I still don't get it. <laughs> this is the complexity. No, that's okay. okay. Because it has that history of being a slur. Okay. Yes. Um, it can be reclaimed, but it can't be um, sort of a blanket term used consistently. So for okay. example, if I were to say to you, I'm a gay woman and you turn to somebody else and said, this is Emmy. She's queer. I could say, no, no, no. I don't gotcha. identify as queer. Gotcha. But if okay. I say to you, I'm queer, um, or my friend is queer, or this is a queer community, you can then use that label because we've used it first and shown okay. that like we're we're not identifying it as the slur and the abusive term. Does that make sense? That makes sense. Yes. Okay. okay. I got it. I think. Right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So with that, let's dive into some of the myths or things that people think or say and that you probably have more information to back if this is true or not. So a lot of people will say like, it ha this happens due to trauma, especially mm -hmm. with somebody that's lesbian or gay. Like they have, you know, they, they were sexually assaulted or raped by a man and so now they're just interested in women. What do you say about that? I find this such an interesting argument, especially in the post me too era mm -hmm. that we're in mm -hmm. where so many women have come forward about the sexual assault that has been done to them overwhelmingly the majority is cis men have done that against cis women yes and yet the majority of those women even the ones who are you know brave and strong enough to come forward about their abuse still identify as straight Right. If if sexuality and sexual orientation of being a, a gay person could be sort of opted into or even caused by trauma, I think we'd see a lot more gay people. So yes, it's interesting that the yeah. percentages. Yes, I have thought the same. 
Um, and in addition, this this idea that it's a choice that people opt into or it's the result of trauma were actually very common understandings of um, what was then called homosexuality. We've moved away from that term because it was so used as a diagnosis rather than identity. Um, okay. So generally speaking, most people within the LGBTQ community do not use the term homosexuality. Okay. Um, and I'll loop back to that a bit when we get to yeah. um, the Freedom March, too. Okay. But in the uh, late 1800s through the 1900s and up to um, just recently, really, when the medical establishment was dealing with people who had homosexual tendencies, homosexual urges, past homosexual actions, they would talk about it as like, well, this is a result of trauma or um, bad bonding with the parent, or they've chosen this as a way of acting out against society. Well, but the problem is when you make those kind of claims within medical, psychiatric, and psychological establishments, you have to back that up with scientific research. That's the core of how we do medicine and the core of how we do psychiatric and psychologic treatments. And the more research that was done, the more we found out that no, actually, people who are homosexual do not have some sort of innate perversion that has made them this way that we can identify in other um, symptomatic characteristics besides their homosexuality. That's okay. It's not consistent with trauma. It's not consistent with parental bonding. Okay. So um, we see the psychiatric process moving away from those kind of diagnoses in the 1950s, 1960s. Um, there's a really fantastic podcast um, by the uh, the couple that does the podcast Sawbones, A Marital Tour of Misguided Medicine, did a two-part, yeah, it's really great. That's Um, cool. I've not heard of that one. I'll have to look it up and link it up. Okay. Tell me what it's called again. Sawbones. Okay. S-A-W-B-O-N-E-S. Okay. And they did a two-part exploration of conversion therapy and exactly how it was developed in American and Western medicine and then why the medical community moved away from it. Okay. But as I said, it's a two-parter. So their first parter is why the medical community moved away from it and then the surge of the Christian community moving into it. So although the medical community has largely rejected these quote-unquote ideas about homosexuality, the Christian church has picked them up and carried them forward. Hmm. Which we could talk for an hour or longer mm-hmm. about that. So I will definitely will link this episode because that what you just talked about, because that is a whole other mm-hmm. Christian approach that's yes. So that it's definitely a myth that this happens due to trauma. Um, what about it's a lifestyle choice, like that there there's no scientific evidence now obviously what you talked about with the the trans like you that there is scientific as evidence but if we're looking at lesbians or gays like their brains are the same what do you say about that sure we don't have really great statistical evidence as far as proving um that there is you know a gay gene for example mm-hmm. i remember in the early zeros they were looking for one when they right. uh, mapped to the whole human genome and they found out like wow it turns out that who you're attracted to and want to spend your entire life with is more complex than just one chromosome <laughs> you can flip on or off darn <laughs> <laughs> what a what a bonkers concept um and Uh, We do start finding some really interesting scientific evidence around um, 
genetics and um, fetal formation, especially with mm-hmm. around gay men. There's um, some interesting scientific studies that show the more older brothers that a man has, the, there's a slightly higher chance that he will identify as gay. That's interesting. Okay. Very interesting. Mm-hmm. But of course, the complexity in all this is how do you diagnose or do scientific research on a community that is still culturally and religiously told it can't exist? Mm-hmm. How, so you know, how do you bring people forward and say, you know, we'd really like to study you and find out exactly, you know, if this is genetic or if this is, you know, nature or, you know, if we can somehow dive into the human soul scientifically how do you do that within the context both of, you know, um, psychology up until the 50s and 60s looked at homosexuality and said, well, the best way to treat this is with physical or abuse or electroshock. Mm-hmm. So yeah. even so within the, the lifetime of people still in the community, there is a lack of trust for psychological, you know, yeah, study. absolutely. I can see that for sure. And then especially within church formats. I mean, how do, you know, in a, in a church context, how would you get people to come forward and say, well, let's really study, you know, the way your faith and your sexuality and your gender identity interact when for many faith communities, the only available message is if you are not cisgender and heterosexual, you're going to hell. So true. Right. You can't like, I don't know that you could create a control study of like, here are some cisgender straight people and right. we're going to tell them that their sexuality and gender identity is wrong and build an entire social structure around that and then see if they conform or not. Right. And I mean, so. what I go back to with that, when people say that to me, and I don't know what your response is or if you even entertain those questions, <laughs> but ah, I mean, why would you choose that? Mm, yeah, very right? much so. I mean, if you hear, and that's what's been the game changer for me is hearing stories, like, why, why would a child choose that? Why would a teenager go through that? You just wouldn't. I mean, so I and don't that's, know. That's one of the reasons, especially within the trans community, there's that distinction of like persistent and consistent um, okay. of like, and that's why we talk about like a longer term identity where it's persistent and consistent. If you have, you know, a teenager who one day says, well, I'm gay. And the next day is like, no, that's a joke. I was, I'm straight. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Teenagers do that. Some of them are terrible. Most of them who identify as gay continue to be somewhere on the non-cisgender, non-heterosexual spectrum. Okay. The expectation of being gay or trans as a phase also ignores the fact that um, bisexuality exists. Mm-hmm. So somebody could, you know, identify as gay for a significant part of their life or identify as straight for a significant part of their life and then marry someone of a different gender than what they always thought they were attracted to. Yeah. Change who they are. Were they always bisexual? Um, we, we talk within the community sometimes about identity being on a spectrum, not in the sense that it can be forced to change, but rather that circumstances can color it so strongly. Okay, that makes sense. And it's all, it's very complicated. I appreciate you explaining this because it's very complicated. And like I talked to you before we recorded, I have read, like you, I'm sure, read so much and it's a lot to take in. And Mm -hmm. it really helps to have you kind of clarify and answer these. So let's dive in. Speaking of a lot to take in and understand (laughs) the Bible. (laughs) And it's like, I told you if one more person tells me the Bible is clearly states that it's a Mm. sin, I'm not sure what I'm going to do, Emmy, because the Bible clearly states a lot of things. Okay. So, (laughs) sorry. You you are preaching to the choir there. Yes. (laughs) That's right. So before we get in, because there are six quote clobber verses, 
let's just talk real quick about like Genesis, like the very beginning when he's the, it says that God made male and female in his image. They made them for each other so they could carry on the population, homosexuality, homosexuality, which I even, I guess I say that term right here, right? Yeah, sure. You can. That's okay. Fine. Okay. Um, it goes against God's plan for the human race. I'm just quoting that from somebody, somebody yep. that <laughs> not me saying that. So what do you say about that? And we start this, at the beginning. Yeah. Let's start at the beginning. Well, uh, I mean, let's, we'll start at the beginning in the very sense of let's talk about the difference between what the Bible would have understood homosexuality to be and what we understand being LGBT is today. Because there was no, I mean, really 150 years ago, there were no parallels to the relationships that LGBTQ people seek to have today. These are, you know, we're, we're, we're seeking publicly accountable, so marriages that are legally recognized, marriages that are um, known and recognized by friends and family, um, that they're lifelong, that it is a marriage in the sense that it's um, commitment to another individual for the rest of our lives, that they are um, monogamous and happening within a partnered relationship. None of that exists in biblical times. Right. The Bible speak about this concept that it has almost no access to. I mean, we barely have um, uh, heterosexually egalitarian relationships in scripture, mm-hmm. much less the, you know, the egalitarian nature that um, most people in same gender relationships are seeking to sanctify in law. That's right. I mean, there. right. And that's why I had a conversation with uh, Carolyn Custis James this week, how the Bible mm-hmm. was written under patriarchy. I mean, it's mm-hmm. not the same lens. And to be in the 21st century and to look at this ancient book for modern day answers, and it's just not, it's, I can't even, my mind can't do that. Our minds right. can't do that. And we shouldn't, but we try to do it all the time. So going back to that Genesis verse, because I know people are still thinking like, mm-hmm. okay, God made it clear though. This was God. He made man and woman. He made woman for man. Like who cares what Paul thought? Like, so how do you get past that? Like that God oh. made it, or are we going just to, to, Oh no, 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 no. You're fine. This? Okay. Uh, it, it depends. I'll go at it from different angles. One of the things that I do like to point out is that there's not a consistency in the creation stories in yes. Genesis. And I do Great. say stories because there are two. There's Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 4a, and then 2, 4b through um, the end of chapter 2 or continuing into chapter 3, depending on how you break them up. Yes. But and that's mind blowing, isn't it? It is. Oh my gosh, this upset me so much when I like was taught this in high school. I had a very radically awesome um, Catholic high school public school teacher who pointed out to us the fact that there are two creation stories that go in opposite directions. Um, the first creation story is the one we like to have the Sunday school kids tell where there's, you know, first there's God and then there's light and dark and then there's land and sea, et cetera, et cetera. And then finally at the end, we have the creation of man and woman, but we have the creation of man and woman together in the image of God. And then in the second version, we start out with like an earth that maybe has a stream, but there's no, and, and a garden, but there are no animals. God creates one being, which is not named man, but is rather named Adam, um, meaning creature made of earth. And then God takes this earth creature, puts it in this garden that God has made and starts bringing it animals for like, what can accompany you? What can be a partner to you? And there's no suitable partner found to this earth creature. And it's only when God splits the earth creature in two that we get man and woman. Which 
looked at like no man was not supposed to be alone so that mm-hmm. it that way as well okay. and of course that's still you know assuming that genesis is meant to be some sort of scientific historical I know. textbook I know. which it's a limiting way to look oh, at what the beauty so of the poetry is trying to do right uh, and a lot of this if you're look, oh i feel like i'm starting a bible for normal people podcast um, <laughs> <laughs> that is like my favorite podcast so i'm like oh here we go but yes it's so deep like and that it this is not the bible is not cl- crystal clear and there's so much more to it and how you're looking at the bible and these stories and what what how you define truth also i think mm-hmm. is another okay mm-hmm. i'm gonna try not to go too deep here but i would like to <laughs> <laughs> um okay so let's get in then i guess to the clobber verses and those are the six verses which so there's six that use is it use the term homosexual or that are like used against that like is that what how you would say those what those verses are there are you know and it gets into like how do we count numbers and what do we consider for and against because the word homosexual doesn't really exist in any context until the 1850s um the what we do when we're looking at what's called the clobber verses is take verses that appear to be about same gender sexual activity and then talk about that Right. Um, yes. Yeah, so let's get into, so Sodom and Gomorrah, which I think this is an easy one to get past, but maybe not for some people. So let's, let's talk about this verse, Genesis 19, uh, 1 mm-hmm. through 38 with Sodom mm-hmm. and Gomorrah, and they were destroyed because of their homosexual practices and all that. So in a nutshell, explain that one to us, which I think is pretty easy to see. It's not, but maybe I'm biased. <laughs> Right. Again, we're, you know, in this context, first of all, I guess we'd have to ask what gender the angels are, because Mm -hmm. using Sodom and Gomorrah, where the men of the town come and demand that the strangers staying with Lot are given over to them, to say that that's a commentary on homosexuality assumes that angels are male, which is a whole interesting assumption on its own. Um, It's a mob standing outside someone's door saying, the strangers in your house who are your visitors, give us over to them that we may sexually use them. Like that's, I understand that there are some people who are confused about LGBTQ people, but this is not a thing we do. Like we're not actually that interested in you. Right. And it's and going back with Sodom and Gomorrah, it does not state that that town, like God was destroying that town because of the, it was of the homosexual behavior. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, it never right. says that. And so like you just said, it's, they want to rape and ma- ma- rape two angels that right. came. I, um, I, and, and that parallel story happens in Judges 19, um, where a mob surrounds um, a visiting Levite who is staying with, he's staying in a house and they come and demand his daughters and then he throws his concubine out to them so that they may abuse the the, the concubine. And okay. so they rape her all night and she is left dead at the doorstep. So, and in this one, his the two daughters are given instead or offered instead. So in Genesis, right, he offers the daughters instead yes. and the men are uninterested because it's not about trying to have sex with anybody of a particular gender it's about trying to tell outsiders you are not welcome here exactly Mm. and the whole town comes so are we thinking every man in that town is is gay because they want to have sex with two angels that we're not really sure of the sex so i was listening to oh a book on this and i think it was called unclobber and Mm. that's what he first of all he talks about how this there's that he reads a story and it's an ancient story from greek mythology that sounds so similar to this and Mm -hmm. it's in that context it's about welcoming the foreigner and the stranger 
So if we could take this, that really this is a verse about we need to welcome immigrants and refugees. Um, and this is exactly what um, the prophet Ezekiel picks up on. And this is really interesting because Ezekiel as a prophet loves sexual imagery. Um, like Ezekiel is probably one of my least favorite books because he loves to talk about Israel as the sort of the whore of, not the whore of Babylon, but like Israel as a whore, Israel as like a lover that's gone astray from God. And in the midst of all that, when Ezekiel talks about the sin of Sodom, he never speaks of it as sexual relationship. He speaks of it as hospitality. You know, the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah, they were greedy and self-centered. They did not care for the poor and needy among them. That is fascinating. So Mm -hmm. there's a whole different lesson here that maybe we need to pick up on in Sodom and Gomorrah. Potentially. Yeah. I can't remember which verse in Ezekiel that is. I'm flipping. You can probably hear me flipping through. I can, but... Um, it's well, not sticking in my brain what verse that that's is. Okay. That's okay. That's fascinating. And I remember if I'm reading right from that book that it talked about three other times that's mentioned or maybe two other. And it's always, even when Jesus brings up Sodom and Gomorrah, it's about welcoming. Right. The yep, stranger. When, like if they, if you go into that town and they don't welcome you, it's just as bad as like Sodom and Gomorrah. It's like, that is not so we've completely um, misconstrued this verse, right. I would say. Right. Okay. Let's move on for the sake of time. I mean, we keep talking. We could keep diving into that one. Maybe this needs to be yeah. like a six part show. Okay. <laughs> we could. <laughs> okay. Let's go into Levitical laws. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Let's just go into other ones for fun, right? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> okay. Well, we can't. And don't worry. That's, that's, I, I do that as part of explaining Leviticus. Is let's talk about like some of the other Levitical okay. laws. Okay. Okay. Good. Like tattoos, no tattoos. Should we talk about that one? I don't know. Okay. Sorry. I'm sorry. I like I gotta... That one's such a cheap shot. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but so, no, I mean, again, we have in the context of Leviticus and in the context of all the clobber verses, it's, it's a really interesting aspect of um, Western Christianity that every gay person is expected to be able to explain these verses. Mm-hmm. But we don't go to every single rich Christian and say, explain to me, contextualize why you don't give away everything that you have and give it to yes. the poor which is a direct commandment from Jesus. We don't, as Christians, go to every single man who treats women as objects, and goodness knows we have a lot of examples of that even within Christian leadership, and say, you need to cut out your eyes. Jesus said so. Yes. Right. So you want to ask, have you read every verse in Leviticus, every law before? What are we claiming is literal truth, and what do we start saying is metaphorical, and what are the motivations behind that? Because I think that as soon as we scratch the surface behind the motivations, it turns out that a lot of it's about consolidating power for those who already are in power and pushing aside those who are already significantly marginalized. So I'll just say Leviticus 22 says, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It's an abomination. Right. Uh, Levitic- Leviticus 20:13. if a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall be put to death. Their blood is upon them. Right. So... Tell us why was that in there at that time? <laughs> the I mean, scholars have a lot of conversation around that. Um, whether or not this was about um, maybe tribal worship in other communities around the Israelites, that like this was part of um, goddess or Baal worship to do these, you know, um, non-procreative sexual acts. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe non-procreative sexual acts weren't just limited to homosexuality, but also to like masturbation, um, things like that. There's conversations around, you know, are there other non Israelite communities around them? And since Leviticus is very much about like, these are the rules that set us apart Yes. They're writing laws that say these are the ways we're not going to participate in that because the only context they have for same-gender same, sex, same gender sexual activity is its worship of 
another god. Um, it might be about focusing on procreative sex for yeah. a community that is in the desert and trying to survive. Like, no, you can't you can't waste your time in you know non-marital sexual activity because again, there's no same gender marriage in the context of the Bible. You can't waste your time on that because we have to be creating as many children as possible to try to survive. Right. And if you're looking at it again through that lens of patriarchy, that messes mm -hmm. that up. And if having a male son is so important, that messes that up. And where mm -hmm. if women are property, that messes that up. So it's a different world in society. Exactly. And interestingly, that word abomination comes up throughout um, different parts of Leviticus and other um, uh, laws in um, numbers and especially in Deuteronomy. And so we have things that are, you know, we still recognize as an abomination, um, you know, in the same, in the way we re would reject this, like child sacrifice, which we know that other communities around the Israelites were practicing, but also idolatry, like worship of gods. And then that starts to get us into questions of like, well, what, what do we worship in American Christian practice? Right. Do we worship money? For example, do we worship political power? Um, in addition, um, flawed sacrifices are an abomination. Well, we don't do sacrifices anymore, but what does that mean for us now? Um, pork is an abomination mm -hmm. consistently over and over again. Um, remarrying the first husband after a woman is divorced and then remarries somebody else and then that person divorces her. If she remarries the first husband, that's an abomination interestingly yes um, i know keep going i'm like like thank you <laughs> and then the thing that really gets me is in deuteronomy 25 14 through 16 dishonest weights are an abomination interesting i have not so heard that one cheating okay. cheating people out of like in the marketplace when you're trading or when you're paying out um wages cheating people out of something intentionally is an abomination okay yeah. Huh. So, so interesting. So we don't pick and choose, do we? Slightly. No, no, no. I mean, so um, that's the frustrating thing when people say it, Bible clearly states the Bible clearly states a lot of things. Sure. The Bible clearly states that um, every, you know, 50 years we should be forgiving all debts. Mm -hmm. Why don't we do that? Right. I'm with you. I want to keep going on. I mean, <laughs> yes, no, that's fine. I'm trying um, to control myself because, yeah, <laughs> I mean, but it's so true and it's just, okay, so let, that's the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. Let's move on to the New Testament. And am I right in the New Testament that Paul is the only one that writes about it or no? Oh, that's deeply complex. I know. So, maybe. so there are some arguments that say Jesus's commandments about marriage um, and specifically yeah. marriage and divorce in Matthew 19 and also in the gospel of Mark have bearing on um, homosexuality in the sense that, well, Jesus says, you know, a man leaves his father and mother and clings to his wife. And therefore Jesus is against homosexuality. And I'm like, okay, that's true. I guess I've always looked at that the same, like just, not getting a divorce because that's what he talks about but tell me then how you when people talk about that what do you say the i mean that's usually, marriage and jesus is clear i mean that's usually what i say is this isn't this isn't about jesus was presented with a very specific question about mm -hmm. what whether divorce is permissible right and why why are you trying to change this into something else um mm -hmm. and again same gender marriage does not exist in biblical times. Right. It just, it was not even remotely on the radar, just like right. uh, to 
working household, you know, a woman working mm-hmm. and a woman in leadership, like none of these were on the radar then. So it was like to expect them to give the answers. And I think people need to be aware of that. And that verse, like I said, I didn't even bring it up because in my mind, and I, you would agree that Jesus was answering a question about divorce right. and Jesus speaks so much more about divorce and adultery than he ever does with almost, I mean, he doesn't mm-hmm. more than this. So it's to, to use that Jesus is again, same sex marriage. It's just, it's not even in the picture. Right. Trust me. So, um, okay. But we can talk more about Paul, which is Let's talk about where Paul. people like to, yeah. Okay. So the first Corinthians six, nine through 11, I'll read it real quick. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. I do start talking about um, those other entries in the list because Paul offers such an interesting spectrum of people who yes. are just rotten, right? From adultery to idolatry, which I, again, I think we should be more concerned about what are the gods that we put at the center of our lives. Yes. Um, but also, you know, the New International Version says like the thieves, the greedy, drunkards, and slanderers. What? Why are we not you know, outside protesting Jeff Bezos's like massive accumulation of wealth through Amazon while we know that his employees like can't afford health care. How is that not thievery and greediness that we should also be saying like, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven because of these choices you're making? Again, I just feel like we're pulling verses out of scripture to say people who are already not in power, these are the verses to use to keep you out of this community. Mm. But people who are already in, who are, who might be of use to us, like rich people, we're not going to touch that. Right. I know. That I mean, you could us. speak to half of America and then compare it to third world countries. Like what mm-hmm. are, what are we doing that? Yeah. Okay. Right. Okay. Right. Um, there's also a difficulty in translation because Again, knowing that Paul does not have access to the concept of lifelong, committed, same-gender relationships, what is he talking about? You know, what what are his reference points? And scholars have been really digging at this for 2,000 years to try to figure out, like, what what is he really saying? Um, is it about pagan temple priests and priestesses who would do sexual rites for fertility? Was it about... Roman gladiators or soldiers um, having sex with their conquests? Um, Was it about um, some of the philosophers in Greek practice who would take young teen boys and train them up not only as sort of like my my protege scholastically, but also sexually? Um, Maybe just people who are having sex outside of marriage and putting their partners at risk. I mean, like any of these things we would condemn. And that's what was known back then. If we're talking Mm -hmm. about quote, abnormal sexual behavior, that's what was known, not a mm-hmm. same-sex committed relationship. Exactly. Yeah. So there's no way Paul can be talking about that when that did not even exist. So, okay. Sorry. Interjected. Right. I, yeah. No, 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 no. I mean, again, sure. We could, we could say that somehow someone said to Paul, like, make sure to fit this in there because in 1800 years, there will be this thing called homosexuality. We have to make sure to head this off. But I really don't know that it's like that big of a concern that that would have been the thing that we have to slip into the scripture ahead of time rather than any of the other things going wrong in our world, including like the absolute ravaging of 
um, almost every non-Western continent in order to, you know, gain wealth for a small number of countries, which is what a lot of Christians practiced several centuries ago, um, whether it's the fact that one in five kids in America still goes hungry every day. Mm. Um, like, really, we think that, we think that this is God's focus, is homosexuality? Like, just percentages-wise, that's just off. I, you'd think God would be a lot more concerned about, like, the one in three right. people who live in the world who live on less than a dollar a day. Why do you think, because this is something I've been really wrestling with, why are, though, people, especially Christians, so hyper-focused on that in these verses and in the Bible and condemnation? Like you said, Mm -hmm. we don't hear groups out protesting or condemning all these other groups. And, I mean, I'm fitting right in with some of these categories. Idolatry, Mm -hmm. yeah, like, it's a struggle in America. Right. I'm right there. Right. I mean, I think it's... We've built societies that require the breaking. I mean, I really do think a lot of, you know, free market capitalism has required us to break basic commandments because it Mm -hmm. worships money and puts, Mm -hmm. you know, marketability at the center of everything valuable. I think that um, the sexual cultures that we've moved in and out of in the Western hemisphere um, have really been, you know, an abuse against women consistently. I mean, you see that in um, Victorian um, sort of puritanical thoughts about sexuality when you also see a significant rise in the use of sex workers. So this idea that like Victorian women were pure, but then there had to be this other category of women that could be sexually, you know, used and abused. Like, oh, it it's almost like we actually don't know how to be human to each other and how to treat each other as equals, especially um, that those in power, in this case, men, don't know how to treat those who are not in power, in this case, women. Um, I think that's I think it gets down to what's easier. Um, It's a lot easier for people to say, you know, to the 90 to 95 or to the five to 10% of people who identify as LGBTQ, like you're in the wrong rather than turning that around on ourselves and saying, you know, what's the, what's the log in our own eye. Right. You're right. It's just, yeah, you're exactly right. But it's really hard for, to get my mind around Mm -hmm. that one. And I think that's something I've just been really trying to process the last Mm -hmm. couple of weeks, especially. So let's move on with Paul to first Timothy one, nine through 10. Mm -hmm. I've got the NIV version here. I like better. Um, We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for the lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious. And for those who kill their fathers or mothers for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those preaching, practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Mm. So oh, of, Paul, we love oh, you. <laughs> um, a lot of what I said, obviously, about First Corinthians yeah. 6, 9 through 10 applies right. here. But also, um, whenever I read Paul's commentary on slavery and what that <laughs> looks like, I'm so fascinated because Paul is incredibly inconsistent right yes. here he condemns slave you know here he condemns slave trading but in other places he tells slaves remain obedient to your masters serve them with fear and trembling if you were a slave when you became a christian don't try to become free um like paul pick a lane man i agree with the whole women in ministry thing he's not doing us favors when he talks out of both sides of his mouth but right like no i don't permit a woman to teach but also here's phoebe who is a deacon uh-huh. and also i'm leaving the church in charge of um it's not ananias and Sophia. uh Apris- yeah, and Aquila. yeah yes. yeah i know so i think that is just a perfect example of why we have to look at the context and who he was mm-hmm. talking to and so with this what was the context in timothy here of who he was talking to and why he was saying this 
Right. He's offering instructions to his successor, Timothy, um, and saying, like, this is how I want you to organize. Um, no, I'm so- Oh, no, wait, I was just looking at Thessalonians. Yeah, okay. So Paul is sending commandments to Timothy to say, like, this is how I want you to organize and run things. Um, interestingly, he also talks about um, anybody who's able to serve as a bishop or an elder. The um, Greek gets translated different ways. He says that person can only have one wife, mm-hmm. which is an interesting sidebar to like oh hey biblical marriage even in new testament may not have just been one man one woman all the time mm-hmm. um, so he's he's giving all of these instructions including is this the letter where he tells him you know i know your stomach's not feeling good take a little wine yes there we go um first <laughs> timothy five twenty three. no longer drink only water but take a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments Gosh, why don't why we is, put that on posters? Right? <laughs> just why, why is every priest not being instructed with that kind of information? Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, so, so, yeah, I mean, this is the question of all of Paul's letters is like, what inspired the letter? What started it off? And is it still, you know, knowing that it has a very strong context, knowing that Paul, as a good Pharisee, would be horrified that today there are billions of people who consider his letters hmm. equivalent to Torah? Like, equivalent to the first five yeah. books of the Bible that he'd been taught to study since he was a child? Like, yeah. oh, horrifying. Yeah. Hor- like, pick a random sampling of your email, Andrea, and that's not equivalent to the Gospel of Luke. Yeah. No, no, none of us would right. want... Okay, so... And we're joking a lot because we're being... I think me and you both have a sarcastic sense of humor <laughs> here, so it's probably we need to... Um, because, but this is, like, a serious thing, and yes, Paul would be horrified. Jesus would be horrified mm-hmm. that we are just picking and choosing and looking at this and taking it right at face value. Mm-hmm. We're, we're not thinking deep enough and diving deep enough if that's what we're doing. And people, people's real lives are at stake here. Right and how they're being marginalized and this is being hurt and weaponized. So, um, yeah. And I just think it's, we've got to do better. And like the term within that verse, homosexual is in that verse. And like you said earlier, that was not even a a word. Like we're Mm -hmm. translating this from Greek and Hebrew. Mm -hmm. And so that word did not even exist. So translations like. mm. There are plenty of verses we can pick and choose that might be considered, you know, uh, clobber verses for affirmation, like First Timothy four four. For nothing created by God, or, or excuse me, for everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected. Yes. Why, yeah. why don't I get to put that on a poster and protest and counter protest? Right. Well, because I don't think that just grabbing a single verse from Scripture in a particular time and place is is the most fruitful application of what Jesus has called us to do. Exactly. And we can, like you just said, we can look up Paul again with uh, no man. There's not man. There's not woman. There's not Gentile. There's not free. Like everybody. Mm-hmm. We're all equal. We're all the same. He's taken it all away. So mm-hmm. we have to, and I mean, if we're uncertain about something mm-hmm. or it's not crystal clear, why would we want to marginalize and hurt a whole group of people? Right. I have Jude six through seven. Oh. <laughs> oh, do you want to read that? Or no, do you no, want no, me I to? Just, I always forget that that's considered one because just the explanation to that seems so obvious to me. Where is Jude? Oh, it's right before Revelation. The angels who did not keep their own position but left their proper dwelling, he, God, has kept in eternal chains and deepest darkness for the judgment of the great day. Okay, that one's less important. Verse 7, likewise, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which in the same manner as they indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural lust, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Okay, so what do we do with that one? So my version, which is the New Revised Standard, says sexual immorality, um, which again, as we said, when we talked about Sodom and Gomorrah, 
might not be about homosexuality, but might be about the fact that they looked at yes. visitors from outside of town and said, we want to rape them, give them to us. Um, I think we could all categorize that as sexual immorality. And then pursued unnatural lust. The interesting thing is the Greek is um, uh, sarkas. Oh, shoot. I can't remember the other. Um, but it, it's literally went after other flesh or alien flesh. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yes. So um, unnatural lust is one translation, but one could also say they went after non-human flesh or angel flesh. Um, wait, is it sarkos heteros? Yeah, it is. It's sarkos heteros. Um, okay. Which, that's how you get heterosexual, is different sex. Interesting. Okay. Um, so I could actually counter this and say, no, it's uh-huh. when you pursue other flesh that isn't the same gender as you that you're in trouble. Um, yeah. now, obviously, I'm not going to do that because that's a flippant use of scripture, which is not meant for, you know, the final use of scripture is not condemnation or sarcasm, but rather the liberation that Jesus has promised us. Right. But just, again, the complexities of translation, um, the understandings of what actually happened at Sodom and Gomorrah, um, the understandings of the context of the Bible and how it understood biblical uh, or how it understood sexuality and gender identity, those all come into play here. Yeah, it really does. So, I mean, Hebrew is so hard and Greek to translate, Hebrew especially, but to translate mm-hmm. and the accuracy mm-hmm. and not having the same words. And I think people really have to realize that mm-hmm. if they are just pulling out these verses. So we have Romans 1, 25 through 27. Mm-hmm. Do you want to read that one for us? Yeah, I have it in the NRSV. Is that okay? Okay, that's perfect. Did you say 25? Uh, yes, I think it starts mm-hmm. at 25, doesn't yeah, it? Okay. Okay. Well, we'll get into that. Romans uh, 125, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God handed them over to degrading passions. Their women exchanged natural intercourse for unnatural. And in the same way, also the men giving up natural course with natural intercourse with women were consumed with passion for one another. Men committed shameless acts with men and received in their persons the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind and to things that should not be done. Okay. So I know you have a lot to say about that. (sighs) So many things. Um, I feel like it's like when people use this verse out of context in particular, I'm always really surprised Mm -hmm. because it seems so obvious to me that you can't. Paul is using all these conjunctions and tying together this larger argument. So, you know, verse 25 starts with because they exchanged the truth. Okay, wait, so what was it? Okay, so we go back to verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up in the, wait, okay, we have to go back even further. Right. Really where we have to start is Romans 1.18. And what we have here is Paul making this argument about um, people Um, mostly pagans of some sort, but he doesn't identify, you know, like an individual group in this time and place, but making this argument about people who committed idolatry, they worshiped, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling a mortal human being or birds or four-footed animals or reptiles. Okay. So they were worshiping (laughs) animal shaped idols because of that. God gave them into unnatural sexual desires. So people who were normally having sex with the, with men who were normally having sex with women and women who were normally having sex with men started having same gender sexual relations. And then in verse 29, they were given, so they were given into things that should not be done. They were filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, craftiness. They are gossip, slanderers, God haters, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, rebellious toward parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. 
So what Paul is offering is not specifically just a condemnation of homosexual activity, but a trajectory of if you give into idolatry, specifically the worshiping of created images, mm-hmm. this is what happened to this particular group of people that I have, I'm telling you a story about. First, they were idolaters. Then they ended up having unnatural sex. Then they were given into every other kind of sin. Thinking about natural and unnatural sexual intercourse what does that mean in the context where we start to understand that there may be something in the nature of LGBTQ people? Right. And then, you know, Paul's longer arc is to get to um, chapter two, verse one. Therefore, you have no excuse, whoever you are, when you judge others. Mm, Right. That's the one we need to hold on to. (laughs) Wait, I thought I was getting to use this whole thing as a reason to judge others. And then Paul immediately transitions and says, what are you doing? You have no excuse. Again, like, I don't even have to contextualize the sense that, like, same-gender sexual activity doesn't, you know, or or, um, same-gender marriage doesn't exist in the Bible, or same-gender, like, romantic love doesn't exist in the Bible. Like, I, I just have to look at the entire trajectory and say, what this is about is a condemnation of idolatry and then a condemnation of judging others in just the basic text of what Paul wrote. Agree. I'm with you, Emmy. I know. I know you, so I, know. I hope this has made given some clarity, even though I mean <laughs> it is still complex. The whole Bible is so hard and complex. And if you think it's not, I don't think you've read it. So and this think, helps. Yeah, go ahead. Well, I think we like to think that things are more simple and straightforward than they are, because otherwise we have to start asking uncomfortable questions. You know, if we admit to the fact that there's not one single creation story in the Bible, how do we argue against you know? terrible scientific concepts like evolution but you know like this has to remain true and perfect in a literal sense or we start getting very afraid and i think we miss so much of the beauty of both the way the bible was knit together by humans who were trying to express faithfully the way they had experienced the divine and also just the nature of the literary forms in it that there's poetry that there's grand metaphor that there's history that there is you know myth trying to explain why things are the way they are if we look to it and say, well, it has to be literal, it has to be historical and scientific and a perfect textbook, we miss so much of what it really is. And I feel like, yeah. That's- yeah, I so agree. And that's been my journey, especially the last year. It's like, what what are we what are we afraid of? Because God can take it. And I think he wants us mm. to question and probe deeper and realize some things his, we're never going to understand until the end of this world when we meet him. I mean, there's so much in there and it's okay to dive deeper and question and to see contradictions. It doesn't invalidate God's word or the Bible, right. but there's just so much there. And I think I've said, like, for me, it started when I started, this started when I started diving into women in ministry and all the contradictions and that led to other things. Okay. Thank you for going over all those verses. And mm-hmm. I'm not even going to recommend books on those because I've had text to me and sent to me books on the opposite end this week. What mm-hmm. you're going to be able to find, and I think Rachel Hood Evans talked about this, like mm-hmm. you can find the Bible can, you can be, use it to justify anything from slavery to oppressing women. So mm-hmm. I'm not going to give books to dissect these things. You can find what you're looking for with those. So let's move on to kind of the Christian response quote, Christian response in your thoughts and what people (laughs) think about that. The whole Freedom March and Mm -hmm. examples of people who like Jackie Hill Perry is very known. And we talked about this last time, but I didn't save it in the interview, but known from like, yes, they were freed from that lifestyle. And that's what the Freedom March is about too. All these testimonies of 
people being freed from being enslaved in the LGBTQ lifestyle. Right. What What do you think about that? Considering the choice that is provided by most churches is you have to stop being gay or you'll go to hell. I, I'm not surprised that there are people who claim they've changed. Mm-hmm. Like, of, of course you would. Of course people would try to change. Of course people would convince themselves that they've changed. Of course, considering that bisexuality exists, people might be able to quote unquote change in the sense of having been attracted to multiple genders, they now restrict themselves only to living into being attracted to what they'd call the opposite gender. Like, I can't, of course, we're not surprised by that. Like, right. And this isn't, I'm so intrigued by this sort of wave right now, this new wave with Jackie Hill Perry, with um, Bethel's work around, like, you can be changed. I'm so intrigued by this because it's not a new conversation. Um, when I was growing up, the organization doing that work was Exodus International. And they um, had offices all around the world. They were really at their peak in the 80s, 90s, and early zeros. And they made all of these claims about the ability to change, made promises that um, one in three of people who went through an Exodus International process would be able to change their sexuality. Um, And they particularly focused on sexuality um, rather than uh, gender identity. And that gets into a whole other thing. But, and the thing that just surprises me is Exodus International closed its doors Mm -hmm. and they revealed we can't actually change anyone yeah and and now we have this now we have this conversation rising again and i'm i'm not you know the 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 wise man said there is no nothing new under the sun so i can't say i'm surprised that this conversation has come back but i'm surprised that our institutional memory is so short you know that we that we had these organizations that claimed change was possible now that also, I don't want to negate in that, that bisexual people exist, right? So you might be experiencing change um, that, you know, looks like change or looks like being attracted to a different gender than you used to be. That still might fit within the spectrum of sexuality. And I also don't want to neglect that there are people who are called to celibacy. That has been part of every religious tradition, including Christianity, since the beginning, Paul was celibate, instructed, like said to others, I wish that you would remain celibate like I am. Right. And that's what I had that on my list too. The celibacy, I think we have to be careful because I've read books that say, and which I know you would agree, we need to be careful that say, okay, yes, people are, this the LGBTQ community, like they could be born this way or whatever, but that just, just their thorn in the side and they're called mm. to a life of celibacy. Like I've read those exact words and heard those exact words. So I just, how do you, I feel, I feel bad even asking you to reply to that. Cause I think oh, it's no, so okay. I mean, really, but what do you say to that? I mean, I would much rather answer those questions than have people continually asking someone who is new to understanding their sexual orientation and gender identity to defense them, to vend themselves against it. Because that's, mm-hmm. you know, the moment you start saying I'm gay or I'm trans within a Christian context, it's like, well, what about these verses? It's like, mm-hmm. I barely know myself. Like, give me a break. Mm-hmm. Only one, there are very few instances, and I include Paul in that, but there are very few other instances where celibacy is a blanket requirement for everybody in an entire community. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, a, it's a gift. It's understood as a gift. Um, you know, even Jesus talks about men who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven, which is an interesting phrasing, um, and certainly has something to say perhaps about people who are trans. Um, 
in in the sense that like what if what we choose to do with our bodies and choosing to take ourselves out of procreative sexuality actually isn't a condemning thing but might be part of living into the kingdom of heaven that's a sidebar pulling agree back. no the whole <laughs> like the whole unit conversation is fascinating in itself austin spoke about that mm-hmm. at the evolving faith conference and that's just a whole other fascinating side of this too so yes i mean but i think the celibate it's you know bt Harmon talks about that in his blue baby's pink mm-hmm. and it's like he tried that is right. that god's calling everyone in the lgbtq community to be without a partner to be nor to be <laughs> to be lonely, to not be, I mean, if we're going back to Genesis, it said God, man, it was not good for man to be alone. Right. I mean, so I, I think that's just a really harmful, right. oh, just and, a label to put on everyone. And we know that when it's a blanket requirement, like Catholic priests, it does not lead to healthy sexuality. What that leads is to, you know, awful evil practices in the dark because, mm-hmm. People are not taught how to be, you know, sexual embodied beings because they're told every sexual impulse that you have is wrong. Right. And what that does is not actually create healthy celibacy, but create internalized self-hatred and then explosive sexuality that's often extremely damaging to those around them. Now, again, this is not a blanket assessment for all people who are called to celibacy. Like some people are called to celibacy, whether it's part of their vocational call or whether it's an individual call. And I respect that but i respect that for both lgbtq people and straight people agree i mean we don't go around preaching what paul says that it's better for man to remain unmarried i mean paul says that why don't we all apply that to everybody we just don't right i mean okay i wish that was i wish that was the phrase the passage we read at weddings was like You don't even, like, me and my husband have led several marriage classes, and we joke so often, like, those are what we want to really read and start off with. Right. (laughs) Actually, let's just save ourselves a lot. If you cannot practice self-control, then you should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Thank you all for coming to this wedding today. Like, that's why we're getting married, is because you two can't hold yourself back anymore. Exactly, exactly. Okay, so I want to go back real quick, because I think it is a... To the Freedom March, because that mm-hmm. is and not just specifically that, but the whole, because this is something in, kind of that I see, oh, I've been seeing more like praying away the gay. Mm-hmm. Oh, let's just keep praying for them. God's got them. God can change. And I think that's the damage that, quote, the Freedom March and that sort of thing does because cause it's, you're, you're, this is like who people are. It's their identity. Mm-hmm. And if you're just that Freedom March or Jackie Hill Perry, puts this expectation that, yeah, you can, you have a choice. And if you're strong enough or God loves you enough or whatever, you can just change. Right. So I think it's important to talk about like the damage that that, that does. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, um, so I think, especially when we talk about damage, when we start talking about statistically, statistical, um, and observable psychological results of condemning language, um, we see consistently across the board that LGBT people who are brought into contact with Christianity, um, and this is just baseline Christianity, not even evaluating for whether, whether or not it's affirming or condemning, the more contact that an LGBTQ person has with Christianity, the more likely they are to have symptoms of self-harm, self-destructiveness, mm. mental illness, um, uh, chemical dependency or abuse and suicidal ideation. Wow, I mean, hmm. so when we start talking about like 
I mean, Jesus said, you will know a tree by its fruit. And the fruit of conversion therapy, the fruit of praying away the gay, or I believe, you know, that everybody can change. The fruit we know is death. Mm. Like that's a theology that only deals in death and God is not a God of death. Yes. Um, and I, I don't mean like that's a theology of death and then you resurrect and you're like a phoenix that's now beautifully straight. Like, no, that's just a theology of death. That's a theology mm-hmm. of self-destruction and implosion and literally, quite literally for many people losing their lives. Yeah. Because they can't live in a context that says who you are is entirely abominable before the divine that created you. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's powerful right there, what you just said. I mean, the rates of depression, suicide, especially in the youth and teens in this community are sky are just skyrocketing and mm-hmm. condemning or praying it away who they are. Like, ugh. and I don't, I mean, I feel like I have to play both sides a little bit. Hmm. These are people's stories. I'm not saying Jackie Hill Perry, that that's not her story. It is. Mm-hmm. And, but I think we have to be very sensitive. That's not everybody's story. Right. That's the danger we're living into at this point when our stories are so easily accessible to each other mm-hmm. that we start comparing like, well, if you can do it, then so can I. Yes. Well, so that kind of goes back into a little bit of, and we'll wrap up here. I've, you've given so much time and I appreciate well, it. I'm, Amy, but I'm sorry that I go so long. I really am trying to be concise. I think you're awesome. I don't think you're going long. I could talk to you. I could probably, <laughs> I could probably talk to you all day, not to frighten you, but <laughs> um, okay. So, the whole approach that people think, and this goes back, these are hard because this goes back to, okay, if you're, if Christians are still thinking it's a sin, but their approach is, okay, I'm just going to love the sinners and hate the sin. If that's the church's approach or people in the church thinking, no, I'm accepting, I love the sinner and hate the sin. Yeah. I don't really know how one lives into that faithfully. How do you live into like, I love you, but (laughs) I'm only going to call you by the name that was assigned you at birth. Which causes you to have, I mean, for for some people um, within the trans community, being called by the wrong name and given the wrong gender causes panic attacks and increases their rates of mental illness. So how is that? That's not loving. Right. And I think, too, don't you, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's, this is an identity, not Mm -hmm. a sin. Like, I don't like, I love him, but I, I mean, I hate it that he's like my husband. I hate it that he was an alcoholic. I hate that sin, but I love him. No, that's like a part, like, that's just a little, that's his one sin, like outshoot, but this is an identity. Mm -hmm. So I think we have to look at that. Mm -hmm. Would you agree? Yes, absolutely. Okay. What about, and there's a lot, this goes along with that churches being saying like, what we're, we're free. We're welcoming the LGBTQ community here. They're welcome to come. We'll love them. We'll embrace them, but we're not affirming or we don't right. condone that lifestyle. What's the harm in that? Cause I think especially where I live that that is the general um, approach. I, the direct harm in that is that it tells people to fracture themselves. Like your money and your energy are welcome here, but not the fullness of you. Mm-hmm. Um, and then immediately you start running into um, barricades in that process. Like you are welcome to give to this church. You are welcome to, you know, volunteer in Sunday school, you know, classrooms where you're welcome to help pick up litter around the church on, um, you know, pick up a highway day, but we will not let you be in leadership if you are wearing your wedding ring that shows that you're married to another person of the same gender. Mm-hmm. Yes, I would so agree. So your entire life, like you've made you've made a commitment before 
I don't know that people realize this, but when people tell me that I, you know, I have, I don't remember if I mentioned this, but I have a gentleman who used to call my church and read first Corinthians six, nine through 10 onto my voicemail once every couple of weeks. You're kidding um, me. No, you haven't told me that. Huh? Oh yeah. Um, okay. That's, that's lovely. That was a use of his time. Um, <laughs> Kingdom work right there. Okay. Right. I, I don't know if people realize like I made a commitment before God, mm-hmm. this is not like my, my wife and I have been together for almost five years. Our entire life is bound up together. She's returned to Christian practice because we're together. Like I am a better person and a better pastor because of her. And you're telling me to turn my back, not only on my call to ministry, but also on the vows that I made before God in marriage. I can't separate myself and just pretend like, Hey, this thing that makes my life better, that makes me a better Christian that gets me out of bed in the morning is just not happening like that. That more than anything really just breaks my heart because, like, I love being married. My life with my wife is so much richer. The work that I can do as a pastor and as a preacher is so much better because she's in my life. And there are people who want to just shut shut that entirely off. Yeah, so a church that says, no, we're welcome, we love you, but totally, like says that part's not okay of your life or ignores that that's a reality or that that exists and totally disregards your marriage, your wife. We can see how that could be so damaging. And I ask that because that's what I see so much of is, well, we welcome and love gays and homosexuals. Like, hmm, but you don't understand. There's, you're not really. And I, I think some, I know that there are some churches that do that because they're deliberately trying to hide the fact that they're not affirming. Mm-hmm. So they will put out signs that say we welcome all, or they will mm-hmm. say all are welcome, or or say, well, of course you're welcome to worship with us, gay or straight. It's a theological bait and switch, is what it is. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, if if your conviction is that LGBTQ identity is sinful, you should lead with that. Yes, because it's misleading, right? Absolutely. And also, like, what if you're so sure that that's the truth? Why are you afraid of proclaiming it openly? Because you know that people won't come through the door because that's an inherently like trauma inducing theology, then maybe we need to rethink, you know, if if that's what the fruit is of the work, then maybe we need to look at the roots and see if they are truly like, if this is a healthy tree. Okay. We're going to shift gears one more time, Emmy, and we'll wrap up here, but I do have just a few more questions that this is, this is probably easier for you to answer as someone that has with the queer grace community that you lead, but this person asks as a person who works with adolescents and kids, what's the best way to help them in this time? Like if they, the person comes out like this particular person is like youth group leader. Okay. Mm -hmm. For instance, they're struggling with parents. How far do you go to help them bridge that gap? What advice should I give a kid who's struggling with these issues? And I think this is, I thought with this question, like, this is easier to answer. It depends if your church is affirming, but around here, the church probably is not. So what, how do you, what do you recommend to that? So I think one of the most important things is to know um, what resources there are out there. And I would say one of the things that's been incredibly valuable for me is an app developed by Crystal, um, and I always forget how to say your last name. I think it's Cheatham, um, called Our Bible. So it's available on iOS and on Android, and it is a devotional app. um, So with Bible readings and devotions written by people and podcast links and like affinity groups specifically aimed at LGBTQ Christians. Oh, okay. Um, okay. So what that does is then make space for reading, you know, dealing with the clobber passages, but also just like reading into scripture um, in, in inspiration and in hope 
without then also tying that up with as long as you're cisgender and heterosexual. Okay. Um, Okay. So, so that would be a good app to share. And I'll put links to resources that maybe you recommend to share. And I know, mm-hmm. again, this is a hard one because if you're in a church that is not affirming and you're a youth leader and a child would come out or confide in you, it's hard to know what to do with that. But steering them in the direction of these things could be a first step. And then mm-hmm. how about if they do tell you like, you know, my parents are disowning me or not accepting, like that's just so, there's so many gray areas with this one. There really are. Um, And I think that can be something, and it it varies from church to church. If you have other, you know, supportive fellow leaders or staff members that you can come together and say, like, we have a kid who's in serious danger because Mm -hmm. disowning from parents, um, being kicked out of the house, uh, a statistic from just a few years ago, they did a survey of kids using homeless shelters. So kids under Mm -hmm. 18 who were experiencing homelessness without their parents and 40% of them were LGBT. And that, I mean, the direct correlation is obvious of parents saying, you know, like, if this is what you're going to be, you can't live in my house. I think that goes into my next question, like advice for mm -hmm. parents whose kids come out. And even if you're not like, if the parent thinks this is a sin, Mm -hmm. the response to your child is so crucial. And the response of like, even if you think it's a sim, not kicking them out is huge. Mm-hmm. I mean, right. or not disowning them. Like that can't be minimized just how big that is, your, how you respond. Right. I think parents can still maintain, you know, especially sexual ethics within the home, you know, for mm-hmm. teenagers. I don't, I, I don't think it's inherently, it's not going to do long-term damage to say, you know what, my house, my rules, no sex with anybody. Right. And I very much doubt that someone's going to say, well, that's fine to have sex with the opposite sex, but if you're gay, you can't, you know. um, Right. So I think to say, like, we're going to have sexual ethics in this house that are consistent, and that means no sex because you're underage, because you're a child, because your brain is still growing, whatever. Well, I was just going to say, so the other with the church, I think um, no matter what your church theology or policy is, is to make sure that person, the student, the adolescent knows that they're still welcome and loved. Mm-hmm. I mean, if we're just putting all this other stuff aside, I think that the most detrimental thing you could do is use the Bible as a weapon or say mm-hmm. they need to change or that's not okay. I think as we can keep showing that they're accepted and loved is the biggest thing. Yeah. And the truth is, if, if someone really feels like, well, what I have to tell my child the truth about how sinful homosexuality is, we already know. Every single one of us knows not a single LGBTQ person in the, in, in the world, in the English speaking world, at least, no, in the whole world has yeah. not heard the clobber verses, has not heard that Christianity by and large rejects us. You, you are not telling us anything new. And I don't, I find that so interesting. You know, uh, gosh, I've been out and pursuing ministry since I was 19. So that's what, 15 years. I can't do math right now. Yeah. 15 years. Okay. And people will still say, well, what about Romans 1? And I just want to say, do you think I haven't thought about that every day for years? <laughs> mm-hmm. Like, do you think I, like, it's right. not, I, uh, I know. I mean, I mean, I told you this okay. week, I've just got a little glimpse. So I can't even imagine if you've, ha- you've dealt with that yeah. for 15 years. And so, so I, I get it that when I'm saying to someone like I'm gay and a Christian and I'm the first person or even the 500th person, but they still live in this space of like, nope, I reject that. That's wrong. What about right. Romans one for them? That seems like a sound argument. And to me, that just seems like you have no idea what this life is actually like, like what my calling is actually like, what my daily struggles are right. like. Right. And so, yeah, to, to believe like, well, I have to tell my child it's a sin and they already know, they already know that a lot of people think that trust me. 
So just going, tell them they're loved. Yes, agree. I mean, if we can simplify it, I think that's that's the big takeaway there with that one. What yeah. about real quick, and this goes into a little bit more detail, but I know it's becoming mm-hmm. more in the news and just with kids that, and you clarified this a little bit at the beginning, but mm-hmm. you know, that feel like a girl that a little boy that feels like, no, I want to wear girls clothes. Mm-hmm. and parents that oh, are just really rejecting that, not wanting to let them. Do you, your advice is to let them wear girls' clothes, let them, I mean, I know this is a lot of fear. What advice for parents of like, oh, this is just a phase or confused or like, yeah, I really do need to let them dress or talk like all of that. And we, and that confusion still happens because in so many ways we do still strictly enforce gender roles, you know, like, mm-hmm. well, girls can wear this and boys can that, boys can't wear sequins. Mm-hmm. What? Why not? They're awesome. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, girls can't play with construction trucks. Why not? They're right. amazing. Like, and so I think sometimes when kids are trying to, um, when kids are crossing those gender expectations, sometimes parents can panic and be like, "My little boy wants to wear a dress. Does that mean he's gay or trans?" And it's like, no, it it actually doesn't. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it means that he thinks dresses are pretty, and okay. he is not wrong. And so to figure out, you know, what are some of the expansive ways that we can allow kids to be themselves? And then, of course, in the context, you know, wherever you may be, if you're in a small town where if your kid goes to the grocery store in a dress, everyone's going to, you know, he's going to be bullied the next day at school, then maybe bring the kid into that conversation of like, hey, if you wear this, this is what might happen. Mm -hmm. We can not buy it. We can buy it, but you can only wear it at home. You can buy it and be brave. What do you want to do? And to have yeah. that be a conversation between the parent and the child so the kid feels like they have a little ownership of their own identity. Um, yeah. One of the kids in my family who I just dearly love um, has no problem identifying as male. Like he's consistent, persistent, insistent about like his own gender identity, which conforms to the gender he was assigned at birth. So he was born. They said it's a boy. He currently identifies as a boy. He loves pink and girls clothes. Like he loves sequins. Interesting. Okay. And the kids at school will give him a hard time for it. And he's just like, you're, you're all idiots. Like, this is all aw- like, I love my pink fingernails. And that has nothing whatsoever to do with his gender identity it has nothing to do with his sexuality. It's just that painting your nails is fun. Right. And, and I this- think it goes back to what you originally said about we've got to really be careful and examine these gender rules and stereotypes that we're defining mm-hmm. on our right. kids. Okay, Emmy, I'll, I'm going to let you, I'm going to let you, <laughs> let you wrap up here. <laughs> is there anything else that we didn't talk about that you want to say that you feel is important? I know we talked about a lot and we fit a lot in. So I'm just wanting to make sure we got everything said that you feel like is important to be said. No, I think especially for advice for parents, family members, pastors, church leaders, in the sense of when you're dealing with a kid or an adult who is coming out as LGBT, there's so much internalized shame. There's so much internalized hatred of ourselves that the proclamation of our belovedness in God is so transformative and essential. I don't think we always understand that within Christian practice. I think we're so used to having to say to people like, you're a sinner and you need Jesus, that the opposite of that, of like the world telling you that you are rotten and miserable and unwanted is not actually true and God Mm. loves you is so, so necessary and can be such an important you know, really a, a, almost a, um, an immune booster against the, the violence that will be dealt onto people for being LGBTQ, you know, mm-hmm. even in progressive cities, even in, you know, major metropolitan areas where they have huge pride festivals and it seems like the LGBT community is huge and they're a blue state or a blue city and it seems like everything is fine, even there. Mm-hmm. There's, like, I don't hold my wife's hand when I get in a car, uh, when I get in an Uber or a Lyft. 
Really? Yeah. Wow. Okay. Because I'm trapped in a car with yeah. somebody who now has control of my of my like bodily safety yeah. and could tell me exactly what they think about homosexuality. And I live in a very progressive city. And so, you're yet still living with that that fear and right. that wow. And me. so yeah. to to remember, like, uh, yes, okay, I I understand this impulse of like but homosexuality is a sin and I have to tell them the truth. Like we already know we really do. What we need to hear is that we're loved. And I promise you, we are working out the rest of it. And we are working out our own salvation and our relationship to God with fear and trembling. And we are sweating blood over these passages and trying to figure out who we are. And we just need you to give space for us and love us so that we can do that in a way that's going to be holistic and fulfilling and bear good fruit. All right. I mean, thank you so much. Mm -hmm. I mean, I just, I adore you and I'm so thankful for this conversation and just your openness and transparency again. And thank you for the work you're doing too. Yeah. And thank you so much for making this space. I know just stepping into it as an ally has been really hard on you. And obviously, you know, I don't want to equate that struggle with mine, um, nor would we ever equate any allies struggle with people who are in the marginalized community. But um, every time you're willing, you or another ally is willing to step into that space, that means there might be one less LGBTQ person who has to deal with these questions um, from somebody who's saying, if you can't answer these questions satisfactorily, your salvation and your life is in jeopardy. So I'm so appreciative of the work that you're willing to do and the work that the Lord is putting on you. Thank you for that, Emmy. Yeah, it's, it's like you said, you cannot compare the two but i appreciate appreciate that and god calls i think all of us to be uncomfortable for his glory